heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a huge crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have these five loaves and two fish. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get on the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, have courage. And this is actually better translated, not it is I. Have courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, hear this, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore at Gennesaret. When the men of that town, or when the men of that place recognized him, they alerted the whole vicinity and brought to him all who were sick. They begged him that they might only touch the end of his robe, and as many as touched it were healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, um, that you are both our provider and protector. We thank you that you are so faithful even when we're faithless. Uh, So today, Father, I pray uh, that you would help us to focus on you and not our problems. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your seats. Um, I wanted to start out with a little picture. In 1982, uh, Pitfall was invented. It was a game that came out for the Atari 2600. These were the the top-of-the-line graphics at the time. Um, And basically what this game was, uh, was you would run with this guy, and his name was Pitfall Harry. And your goal was, hear this, Not to fall into any pitfalls. A simple game, but the game was wildly successful. Why? 
Because this game is basically all of our lives. We tend to live life chasing treasure, getting the good things that we can, and our lives are governed by avoiding pitfalls, trying to stay out of pitfalls. Fear and failure are two of the most um, dominating aspects of how you and I live our lives. And so here's what I mean by that. I'm going to define failure. Failure is this, um, is realizing that giving my all isn't enough. How many of you have decided that in a relationship that you felt if you gave your all, it wouldn't be enough. You decided forfeit was better than failure, and you, you just turned your back and ran. Do you see how much failure governs our lives? Well, it's not just that, but it's, it's fear, too. Fear is this, uh, the present feeling that my future is in jeopardy. The present feeling that my future is in jeopardy. How many of y'all have ran away from relationships or friendships or tasks or projects or trying to help somebody else or commitment to Jesus for the exact same reason? Fear and failure govern our lives. They're these pitfalls and we're like bloodhounds. As soon as we get a whiff or a scent of any one of these, We do all that we can trying to avoid it. We strategize, we practice, we leave, we forfeit. We do all types of things to make sure that we don't have to experience fear or failure. Um, And sometimes it works. But then what you and I quickly find out uh, is that sometimes, even in the midst of your best strategizing, you cannot avoid those pitfalls. Do you know why? Because Jesus leads you right into them. Following Jesus will eventually lead us to the peace that we want. The problem is when you get into the car, he's the guy that likes to drive down the roads with the most potholes and and bumps. It's this scenic route that you say, I thought we were going to peace. And what he says is, "Uh, please don't confuse the destination with the journey. And our natural inclination is to try to jump over these pitfalls and abandon ship. But what I want to do here today is to make sure that none of us abandon ship too early. That instead of us saying, I don't like where he's leading, we instead should say and spend our time saying, what's he trying to do? Why is he leading me here? The Lord God does not do anything to us that is harmful or useless. As a father, every place that he leads us is purposeful. So if you feel like you've fallen in and you're at the bottom of a pit hole, uh, pitfall and you've done all that God has uh, asked you to do and you still feel like failure is inevitable or fear is ruling, I want you to know you're not there by accident. And so here's what what I want to do. I just want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 14 and help you see this. But um, 
our major problem in life is that we focus on our major problems. The biggest problem that you and I have is that we focus too much on our biggest problems and not the Lord that is bigger than those problems. So the reason why Matthew writes his gospel, the word gospel is this, a proclamation of good news. It's not meant to be read like a how-to manual. It's meant to be read like a newspaper to introduce you to news, to introduce you to someone. So just start here. Look here at verse 13, and it says this. Look. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. Stop right there. Um, a lot of folks are going to read about how Christ fed the 5,000, how he walked on water, how Peter walked on water. And we immediately read those things and says, what does that have to say about me? What do I need to do? I want you to know those stories are not about you. The stories are about Jesus. The goal of this time is for you and I to get our eyes off of our problems and onto him. But look at this. It starts off and said, when Jesus heard this, what did he hear? Do you know what he heard? He heard that his cousin, who was preaching the same message that he was, John the Baptist, was just beheaded, head chopped off. Because the king made a promise to a girl that gave him a dance, and he didn't want to go back on his word. So Jesus hears about, hear this, the senseless killing of his cousin. At this point in Matthew, we've already seen the crowds are doubting Jesus. We see the religious rulers distrust him. We see everybody's disappointed in what he brings. And now he experiences this death of this close loved one. And it goes on. It says, when he heard this, he withdrew from there by a boat to a remote place to be alone. Do you hear the lengths that it goes to to say that he wanted to be by himself? It's not just that he went to be by himself. It would be like me saying he went put his phone on airplane mode, pulled the car around the backyard, closed all of the blinds, locked the door to his room, and put a sleep shade on his face so that it would be abundantly clear, listen, this is somebody not just that lost somebody close to him, but John the Baptist is actually going to be a foreshadowing of the big pitfall that Jesus himself is going to fall into. When you really, really, really want to be alone and people do not leave you alone, how do you feel? Annoyed. Jesus really, really, really wanted to be alone. Verse 14 says this. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. We talk a whole lot about Jesus proving the fact that he was God in the way that he rose from the dead. And we don't take into account enough how much he proved that he was God in the way that he lived. Yeah. 
This, this is different. This, this is not a group of people coming to Jesus just for what they want on his best day. This is his worst day. And do you see how he responded? Houston Smith, a guy that's a religious professor, uh, yeah, wrote it like this. He, he said this, um, how many people have provoked this question? Not who are you with respect to name, origin, or ancestry. Jasmine, is that next slide. But what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? Not Caesar, not Napoleon, only two. Jesus and Buddha. What, 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 what he brings up is this. In the history of the world, you think of all the major religions, and there were two people, historically, that people looked at the way that they lived and responded to things like this, and their followers said, not who are you, but what are you? Bro, you are different. And out of both of these, uh, Buddha was adamant about saying, yo, I'm not God. I am not God. I'm not him. Jesus is the only one that people have looked at and said, what are you? And he says, ah, well, I'm God. That's kind of why I do things the way that I do. And you see this great compassion. And I don't want you to lose that because this story is about him. And we're going to see how he responds to both failure and fear and how he guides you and I to live. And we're going to walk through these quickly. These stories are so familiar to us. Look here at verse 15. It says this. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Right here, what you have is people that have a very godly concern. They're concerned for the needs of the crowd, but they try to solve it with worldly resources. And they say, this problem is great, but Jesus, we don't actually have the tools to to solve it. Even if we give our all, it's not going to be enough. So here's what we do. Let's send them out so that they can buy food. Now, that sounds caring, but I want you to know it's not. This crowd was at least 10,000 people, at least. Where they are, listen, there is not a town in sight that has inventory to sell enough food. It would be like if LaGrange, Georgia decided to host the Super Bowl next week. People would come and descend, but they would run out of food. The disciples know this, but they say, this problem is so big, we have a deficit. Jesus, this ain't on us. Send them away. And notice what Jesus does. He pushes them into this pitfall of failure. Verse 16, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Do you know what that word does to you? Do you know what that word does to to them? What the commands of Jesus should initially do to all of us? And it's to drive us to a little bit of despair. 
as we try to interpret the future, what he wants us to do through the lens of our strength or our weakness. Immediately, you come to the same conclusion like they do. Look, but we only have five loaves and two fishy. That's all we have, Jesus, for us. And you know Thomas be eaten, and I thought we had more, but Judas had the knapsack, and you know there's something about that guy. We're not really sure. And what they're saying is, we don't have enough. We only have uh, enough for us. What they're saying is, Jesus, it's going to take a miracle to minister to all of these people. It's impossible. Look at the very next words of Jesus. 18. Bring them here to me, he said. That's reminiscent of Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses, I'm going to set this nation free from slavery. You tell them that I sent you. And he said, God, I ain't got nothing to prove that you really sent me. And God says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, a big stick. And God says, you put that in my hands and I can set a nation free. This is the God who created the world with nothing. And the disciples are saying, look, in my hands, I don't have much, but I have something. And what God's saying is that something is actually more than what I use to create the world. You have more resources to solve a smaller problem than I did in the creation of the world. The most important thing is not what you have. The most important thing is who's holding it. A few years ago, my wife and I had a um, girl stay with us, and uh, she, uh, the first day that she came there, we didn't have any food in the fridge. Um, and so she said, what are we going to have for dinner? And I said, we don't really have anything. 45 minutes later, she makes the most amazing chicken parmesan. She took the leftovers and the scraps. In my estimation, it was nothing in her hands. It was a full meal. And what we see in this story is Christ takes it, breaks it, then he gives it to them to pass out. Hear this. They are saying it's going to take a miracle to minister to all of these people, and they're ready to quit, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll do the miracle. You do the ministry. He's going to do the heavy lifting and hear this. The crowds were fed by the hands of the disciples, which this is a small point and it's not the main point. But if you're intent on all I need is Jesus, um, then you're going to be very malnourished because Jesus did not give a sandwich to any of the 5,000. They were fed not by his hands directly, but by somebody that was not him. As all of us are, we're fed by somebody that's not him. The point of all of this was not just that Jesus solved their problem, but hear this, everybody ate all they could ate, all they could eat. And there were 12 basketfuls left over. The disciples who prior to the ministry were getting ready to have to divide five loaves of bread and two fish among grown men. 
now all leave with their own knapsack of stuff. Do you know what we see here? That the Lord can make provisions stretch. Deficits in the hand of our Lord turn into surpluses that we can't imagine. Success is not based on your ability to change an outcome. Success is based on your capacity to obey. Obedience. Do what he's called you to do. And when you find yourself facing an insurmountable problem, Sex abuse in the church. A relationship that just won't get any better. Providing for the needs of a disenfranchised community. We aren't those people that back up. We aren't those people that judge our ability to do God's work by the resources that we have at our disposal. We are those people that call for backup. That can judge God's ability, not by the resources that we have, but the reinforcements that we have. We spend so much time looking ahead at the future and looking at the possibility of failure that lies ahead that we forget who has our back, y'all. Here's how this plays out in my own life. Uh, Four and a half years ago, you know, my brother died and shortly after he died, my oldest brother moved here to Atlanta right when we were getting ready to plant this church. And he stayed here for a year. And in that year, he really needed, he really, 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 really needed help. People to latch on to, a community. And he leaned on me heavy, heavy, heavy. And do you know what I did? I said, man, that weight is too much. It is going to take a miracle to minister to your needs, and I can't do the miraculous. And so what I said was, man, I can't, man, I can't do this. You've got to go. And I sent him away. And if I would have had faith in the Lord Jesus like this, I wouldn't have sent him away. I would have done all that I could to bring him to the Lord. And the same is true for all of us. If we really knew that success isn't based on our ability, we would spend more time bringing people to Jesus than sending them away to fend for themselves because we're afraid of failing them. We'd be less cowardly. We'd be more compassionate. Because we know that Jesus does the miraculous. We we just have to do the ministry. We just pass out the bread. Who have you decided to send away to take care of their own problems because they're just too much for you to put on your shoulders. I mean to tell you that you don't have to send them away. You 
and people like you that you know you can do all that you can to bring them to Jesus. Can be honest and say, I don't have what you need, but I know somebody that does. Come follow me. It's not on you. Jesus shows that when it comes to our future, listen, failure should be a non-factor because success doesn't lie on our ability and our resources. Success lies in our reinforcements, and we have the God who created the world backing us up. But I love what Christ does here. Look at this, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Why does it tell us the order that he did it? Because if you go to the Gospel of John, what you'll find is that when people see somebody with that kind of power, do you know what they want to do? Make them their king. And so what Jesus does is he sends the disciples away before the paparazzi come and they start feeling themselves. Then he sends the crowd away. And hear this. And then he spends an entire night alone in prayer. Jesus is dealing with the grief of the death of his cousin, as well as the prospect of, this is going to be my fate. He's bombarded with the crowd at first, and what compassion can do at times is to say, I need this time by myself, but for the sake of somebody else, I'll put them in front of me. But what compassion never does is completely ignore that time that you need. Jesus shows his divinity, the fact that he's God, and saying, I can delay this a long time. But he shows his humanity and what it means to be human by saying, at some point, you have to be able to tell people, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm spent. I need to refuel. I need to recharge. And anybody that will not give you that permission to refuel or recharge, or anybody that hears, I, I can't, I just need some time, and feels burned down and says, but I need you. They may be treating you as if you're God, and let me tell you, you are not. Jesus sends the crowd away, sends the 12 away, gets his alone time. But here's what he does. Where does he send the disciples? Into a stormy sea. He pushes them into another pitfall. Hear this. You have senses. Five of them. God gave you those five senses to protect you from danger, to alert you to fear. So when your brain gets a sound, gets a sight, gets a smell, touch, or a taste of something that is bad for you, your brain sends a DM to certain parts of your body and you move. So if right now, this half of the room stands up and just runs out of the room. You're running. Or you should. 
Your senses are meant to alert you to what's wrong out there. Your senses are meant to drive how you live. Whenever one sense is broken, the other senses work in overdrive to make up for it. Hear this. You have five natural senses. Sight, hearing, touch, taste, smell. Faith is a sense. And where your faith sense is broken, all the other senses work in overdrive. And you live based on what surrounds you. Look here. Verse 24. Meanwhile... The boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and says, have courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. I read that whole section just to help you see this. Jesus is the one that sends them into the storm. Everything that feels bad to you is not bad for you. We get lost in the details of this passage. Well, at least Peter walked. Peter had faith. You and I should be like him and try to walk on the water. What Jesus didn't do is say, man, Peter, good job, man. You'll you'll get him next time. We're going to try this thing until you make it all the way out. Jesus doesn't get into the boat and says, where were the rest of y'all? Peter had faith and he came out. Jesus looks at Peter and he corrects his lack of faith. He doesn't commend the fact that he actually came out to him. Scholars believe that this portion of the text is not about Peter's faith. It is about his faithlessness. It's about The boat being rocky and Jesus saying, don't be afraid, I'm here. Listen, and to the person that really knows who Christ is, do you know what brings us peace? Not storms calming, but Jesus being present. The person who who knows Christ, when he says, I'm here, the person that knows him says, that's it. That's it. The person that doesn't know Jesus, when the storms in life rock, 
and they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and he says, I'm here. The person that knows him says, that's it. The person that doesn't know him says, that's it? That's it? That's all I get? I, I, I thought that you were going to fix things. Peter abandons ship and jumps out, and he walks. But then as, as quick as he walks, he fails. So we see Christ's power, but what this is a picture of is the way that Jesus treats his failing, faltering disciples. That even when they have this lack of faith, what he doesn't say is, I'm going to let you bob up and down a few times just so that you really know that you should have faith in me. He goes on and says, immediately, he reaches out his hand and he picks him up. And he steps back in the boat, and as soon as he gets in the boat, things calm down. And listen, here's, here's the point of this story. The point of all of this is you have to remember, this is a section of Matthew that comes in the context of the whole book. And thus far in this whole book, nobody understands who Jesus is. People doubt him. People distrust him. The Pharisees say he's a servant of Satan. Herod thinks he's John that rose from the dead. God knows who Christ is. He pronounces it at his baptism. The demons know who Christ is. Creation knows who Christ is. Everybody else misses him. And then at the end of the story, it ends with this. And they worshiped him and they said, You're the son of God. You are the son of God. And this is the first time in the book that people really grasp who Jesus is. And hear this. Though you have different pitfalls that you may fall into, they're all for the same purpose. God pushes us, and that's the best word I could think of because that's how it feels. God pushes us into pitfalls. Hear this. To deepen your understanding of Jesus. God sends you into the bottom of your despair and your failure and your fears to deepen your understanding of Jesus. We all know that he's real. The reason why we're in church here is because we know in our head that the answer is we should Look to him. The problem is that as problems start to come up in our lives, we overlook Jesus as we look at those problems. And we can't help but to keep those things in view. And so what's common in both of these stories is this. Everything's fine until Jesus tells them to do something. You feed them. You go across the water. And as soon as Jesus talks and they obey, do you know what they're met with? Two things. Their inadequacy. Jesus, I can't do what you called me to do. Jesus, you put me somewhere and I'm scared of where you placed me. And do you know how the problems are solved? By the entrance of Jesus. And they've heard he was a provider before, but now they 
They taste it. They've, they've heard that he was a protector before. But now they feel a fast beating heart calm down. They knew who he was. It was clear. But now it becomes real. Why? As a result of falling into these pitfalls. Here's what Jesus does for you and I, for for the people that overlook him, where our problems overshadow it. Do you know what he does? Jesus sets up this divine photobomb. I don't know what that is, right? Where you're getting ready to take a picture of something or someone. You have them in your sights. It is clear. And right before you snap that picture, somebody or something jumps in the way and makes themselves the focal point of what shouldn't have been the focal point. That's what the Lord Jesus does in both of these stories. As they're butted up against failure, as they're butted up against fear, at the last moment, at the darkest time of the night, Jesus comes in. He sets it up so that the lasting picture, the thing that they run away with, is not how big their problems are, but how big their God is in comparison to those problems. Listen, even a penny can block out the sun if you hold it close enough to your eyes. Every faith problem is a focus problem. Who's at the forefront? Who's at the front of this? So the disciples look, and here's what I mean. Their problems lead them to say, I know I feel this certain way, but there is something God has given to override my feelings. And what they say is this, you are the son of God. That what they're saying is like somebody would look at me and look at my dad and we have the same face. And they would say, John, you're the son of Bennett. Y'all got the same spirit inside of you. Y'all are the same. Here's where we see that in the text. Psalm 78. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus starts off with this psalm. This psalm basically says, God's going to speak to mankind, but mankind's not going to listen. Isaiah 6, God says, Isaiah Um, I have children that are rebellious, and you're going to babysit them. But I just want you to know, they ain't going to listen to anything that you say. Jesus says that was his mint industry as he came into the world. This is the passage that we read at the front. Look at verse 21 and 22. As it recounts the faithfulness of God, it says this, Therefore, The Lord heard and became furious. Then fire broke out against Jacob and anger flared up against Israel because they did not believe or rely on God for salvation. So it's recounting the history of God's people and it starts off and says this, God is angry because the people who he gave everything to are completely faithless. How would the God of the Bible respond to people that are faithless? Do you know how? Read this next verse about what God did. 23. 
he gave a command to the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained manna for them to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. People ate the bread of angels. He sent them an abundant supply of food. He rained meat on them like dust and winged birds like the sand of the seas. He made them fall in the camp all around the tents. The people ate, hear this, and were completely satisfied. For he gave them what they craved. What this is saying, oh look, do you know what God did to the people that didn't have faith in him? To the people that should have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? To the people who judged their ability to do what God told them as they looked through the strength of their, or, or looked through the lens of their strength? Do you know what God did? God fed them for 40 years and provided for them abundantly so that they would learn not to doubt. Not by God saying, shame on you, you shouldn't doubt, but by God feeding them and leaving them with 12 baskets left over. Jesus comes on the scene, and for this crowd that just wants things from him, do you know what he does? He feeds them. But this is what God does as well. Psalm 78, 53, he led them safely, and they were not afraid, but the sea covered their enemies. Do you know what that's rem reminiscent of? The exodus. God led them to walk on dry ground, and then the people that they feared the most, God buried them in the water. After Christ feeds, do you know what he does? He walks on the water, tramples on the thing that has them scared so that you and I would know, listen, that if we do have faith in this Savior, failure is impossible, fear is irrational, because he's bigger than everything that you and I are afraid of. But do you know what? That's still not enough for us. So do you know what you find? Jesus is not the guy standing on the outside of the pitfall trying to pull us up. What he does is for people that don't get it, he decides to climb into the pitfall. For people who can take their eyes off of every other problem that they have in life, there is one problem that you and I cannot take our eyes off of and hear this. That's death. All of us. Whether you are fearful of it when it comes or whether you're weary of living and you just hope that it comes quickly. All of us have this eye towards it in our future. And what Jesus does is God in the flesh, who does not have to die, chooses to face that. And he dies a shameful death for all of us. And in his death, Matthew 27, 54, do you know what you get? Somebody that says this, when the centurion and those who were with him were keeping watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and things that had happened, they were terrified. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. It's not just our pitfalls that deepen our understanding of Jesus. It's the way that the Lord and Savior 
who never had to come after us to get us, came after us to get us, showing that he was victorious over everything that we fear, climbed into that last pitfall of death. And even in his death, folks looked at him and said, truly, this is the son of God. And Jesus says, if you thought that was amazing, wait until you see the way that I get up. And then he gets up and what you have are the disciples. They're changed. And he says, if you think that is amazing, wait until you see the way that I make everybody that puts their faith in me get up to where one day Every knee will bow. Every person in creation will look and respond just like the disciples did at the end. Say, truly, you are the Son of God. Every pitfall that was thrown at him and at us, his people, only served to deepen our understanding of Jesus. Do you know what that does? It changes the way that we look at him. It changes the way that we look at Jesus. He is not a picture of a grumpy dad that has a bad day and says, don't bother me until I'm ready. He is a God that lavishes his compassion on people that do not deserve it, people whose faith fails and people who turn around and rebel against him, he convinces them to turn back to him, not just with judgment, but with his, his kindness. And when you change the way you look at Jesus, hear this, it changes the way that you treat your problems. Every one of them. None of them are worth our sanity. Our utmost thoughts, our worship and affections, Our problems are real. We feel them deeply. But they're not the most important thing. God is going to use our problems, every one of them, to deepen our understanding of who he is, to show that he is a provider and he is a protector for those that put their faith and trust in him. And your faith is not meant to diminish your feelings or to act like they're not important. Uh, But your faith is meant to overshadow it. And that's what our Lord does. He allows us to focus on problems. And he steps right in front of them and casts a big shadow over every one. When it comes to following Jesus, you have nothing to fear. When it comes to following Jesus, if we go where he tells us to go, failure is impossible because success is not about your ability, but your obedience. And all that he calls us to do is to bring our problems to him. Everyone. My prayer is that this church this community, our friendships would be that place where we bring people to Jesus. And as he's promised his presence, we would be able with confidence to say, 
That's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, there's um, not much for us to do but to remember who you are and worship, Father. Help us to be reminded, God, of these truths, Lord. Help us to be reminded that you are all-powerful. Our problems are not, Father. You are unchangeable. Our circumstances change, Father. Father, help us to place our faith in you, to be governed by what you say and not what we sense. Help us to be people of faith that boldly go after you and your will, regardless of how it feels in the moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray.